It's old-timey crimey. I am Christy. I'm Amber. And we are here with our good friend, Joel. Joel. Joel is a good friend of the show, and he's also one of the patrons who helps keep us going. So we're very much appreciative. He's also just a friend of ours in yeah, general. Yeah. <laughs> Not just a friend of the show. He was friend of ours, friend of the show. Yeah, friend long before the show even started. So before I even knew what a podcast was. Yeah. And now you do, and you're part of one. <laughs> so we have a fascinating show for you guys this week. We're going to do one of our timey after timeys, which is where one of us does a case from the olden times, and the other one does a case from the new in times. And uh, there's a connection in them. This one, the connection is... Canada. Oh, Canada. <laughs> I wanted to wear my Canucks jersey today and I forgot to. Oh, no. Missed opportunity. <sighs> so before we get to all that, don't forget about the Patreon. I think Joel can tell you how awesome the, being a patron is. It's my, it's, it's great. <laughs> I, I love it. it. I listen to it. It's pretty regularly. So yeah, we give you the uh, old Tiny crimeys, which are getting longer and longer. <laughs> They're getting to be full episode length almost. And uh, we also give you an extra extra. So you get five bonus episodes every month for just $5. Today we did a tiny timey after tiny timey. <laughs> so we did the same thing we're doing here, sort of, but tinier. And we did some, uh, some gentlemen who vanished without a trace. The parrot is no more. <laughs> Little green men. Yes, they were very, very different cases, but also had those, those similarities in them. So, uh, Which we're going to see again in just a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amber's uh, involved possibly mobsters and showgirls and such, and mine involved possibly aliens. So <laughs> that was entertaining. All right. On that note, speaking of entertaining, normally we do the old case first and then the new case. However, I happen to know that Amber's case is a little on the grim side, and I intentionally picked one uh, to be a little bit of a palate cleanser after that. Yes. So we're sorry ahead of time. Yes. We're, our, uh, our apologies in advance for whatever Amber's about to say. And also, Amber, this was a, uh, a recommendation. This was a request. Yes, this was a request from one of our listeners, Cody. So this one is for you, Cody. She had suggested this to me, and since the case was in the, the late 80s, uh, we kind of have to bend the rules to get there. So, timey after timey. Well, it fits with our timey after timey mm -hmm. thing, so it was just an excuse to do a timey after timey. It really was. <laughs> it really was. So this one's for you, Cody Norman. Thank you, Cody. All right, so let's start with Alan Legere. I'm wondering, I did know somebody with that last name in school, and he pronounced it Legere. Oh, probably. I mean, he's Canadian, so French makes sense. Legere. Legere, yeah. Okay, we can go. Alan Joseph Legere <laughs> was born the day before Valentine's Day, which is going to be right around the time this publishes. So, February 13th, 1948, in the town of Chatham, New Brunswick. 
Oh, Canada! Amber does not know the tune to uh, the Canadian National Anthem at all. (laughs) I just want to yell, Oh, Canada. Oh, Canada. Oh, I'm not really singing it. I'm just yelling it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Kind of like how I just randomly yell, like, cock! So it makes the thing light up. It did? (laughs) Yep. Yep. Love it. The the wave just just spiked there. (laughs) So Alan's father worked a lot, not around very much. That left his mother to care for Alan and Alan's little brother, who was only a year younger than him. Alan was a pretty normal child, but at an early age, the dad, who was not around so much, decided to not be around at all. Mm. So he was just out of the picture entirely. Alan and his brother went to the local school, but they had a lot of trouble making friends. And, And this is weird to me because, like, Canada is always, like, the nice place. But kids are never nice, I think, no matter where you go. So uh, their classmates would actually bully them for not having a dad. Oh. Like they had any say over that. But they would feel left out all the time. They'd get picked on because their dad didn't want them. And then the schools would do, like, events with parents, and they didn't have a dad to go. Like, their mom would still very much try And she would be there, but a lot of the other kids had that nuclear family. And and that was something that they didn't have at all. Hey, Ellen, you suck so much, even your dad doesn't want you. Yeah, pretty much, but constantly. Yeah. Hey, Ellen, where was your dad at the ice cream social? (laughs) Yeah, like, kids are terrible. We know that. That's fine. But the brothers had each other. And they were very, very close. And actually, all the, the bullying and the lack of other friends made them pretty much inseparable. Because they were all the other one had. And, and I think anyone that has, like, a sibling really close in age can probably relate to that on some level, at least. And it's also sort of like trauma bonding. Yeah, trauma bonding. Which I think is all childhood. <laughs> <laughs> really, it is. But Alan kind of was very angry at... at the whole community, even from a very young age. And he would talk to his mother about it, and she would always tell him the same thing. People are there to love, and they should be treated with respect and care. And then she would, like, just tell him stories about, like, Canadian folk heroes Mm -hmm. and stories from her own life about how people were kind to her, trying to just get through to him that not everybody is mean. People are, are kind, and you should treat people kindly. But Alan was still just kind of mad about it. But they were very close, and he and his brother were very, very close. But Alan had had enough of this bullshit. He really had. He was sick of it. And he's like, well, I'm just going to skip school. Especially once you get into, like, preteen, teen years. He's like, well, I don't want to go to school. They, they just make fun of me all the time. I don't have any friends. Why should I go? So he starts skipping school. Principal calls the mom. Mom says, nope, got to go back to school. And Alan's like, well, fine. If I have to go back to school, I'm getting it done. Graduates at 16. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Things are finally looking up for Alan. He gets to be done with school. His brother's only a year behind him, still in school, but that's fine. At least Alan's out because he's the one that's the most angry about the way that they're treated. But that doesn't really last. So things become strained between Alan and his mom. They'd always been very close. But now that Alan was done with school, his mom's like, okay, get a job. Help me with the bills. If you're not in school, work. And he didn't really want to work. He's 
16 years old, he just finished school, he probably doesn't want to do much of anything. He just wants to bang on those drums all day. That's what he wants to do. <laughs> so things are getting a little stressed with him and his mom because she's like, well, if you're done with school, get a freaking job and help me with these bills. And then things get really, really bad. Alan's little brother is run over by a truck. <gasps> oh. Oh, no. Shortly after Alan had, had graduated. And um, the truck literally ran <gasps> him over, and, and he was DOA. Oh, my oh, God. Shit. So Alan and his mom are fighting. Alan's little brother and biggest friend in the world is dead. And Alan's mother... I don't know if it was the frustration or the the just grief of losing her son. Told Alan, the wrong son was killed. It should have been you. Oh, my. She cashed him. Yeah. So, oh, shit. Right? And so Alan doesn't have anybody left. He doesn't have a brother. His mother's pretty much dead to him. Like, not, not literally, but, I mean, your mom just said you should have been the one that died. And he has nothing and no one. And, all right, I need to leave here. So he packs up all of his stuff. And he moves to Winchester, which is just outside of Ottawa. And he gets a job as a car salesman. I mean, it's a job. It's a job. It doesn't pay very well. He's not very good at it. Because he's not very good at socializing and being a car salesman, a big part of your job is socializing and being friendly and... Yeah, I've never met an angry car salesman. Used car dealerships, probably. I don't think I've ever bought a car from a dealership, honestly. So, he, his co-workers don't like him and make fun of him. And this is just like the string of events in his life that nobody really likes him and everybody makes fun of him. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. Okay, now sing that to the tune of O Canada. Nobody <laughs> likes me. <laughs> Your Canadian listeners are just loving this. Yes. So he, he was making a meager living. I mean, it's not great money, and he's bad at his job, so he's not selling a ton of cars. But he's, he's making a little bit of money, and he starts trying to flirt with ladies, and they're not really feeling it. I can relate. So... What comes next when this is your life? Just try to find hookers. where you... <laughs> you don't have the money for hookers. Oh, yeah. Doing crimes. Well, yeah. I guess so, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's the obvious progression of things. We hate society, and nobody likes us, and we're bad at our job, and we don't have a lot of money. So let's do crime. Money. So he starts with petty theft. And again, this is not something he's good at. He's very, very bad at petty theft. So he would try to pickpocket, but he's in, he, you have to understand, he's in his late 20s at this point now, and trying to pickpocket starting in your late 20s, you're not very quick with your hands, you don't have that sleight of hand, that, like, as say, somebody that has been doing this a long time, and so more often than not, he would just get his ass kicked. Yeah, he's no Oliver Twist. He's no Oliver Twist. But he still really liked it, even though he was getting, like, his ass kicked often 
he was huh. getting caught trying to steal, and then they were, like, pummeling on him. And he's like, but this is still a lot of fun. And he's he is getting some extra money from the ones that he successfully pulls off. And then he went from trying to flirt with women, because we're just going to escalate everything, to trying to force himself on women. It's not clear how far that went. So there was, at this point, no prior rape convictions on the record. But he was definitely, like, the creepy guy at the bar that the girls were like, no, come to the bathroom with me. Get the fuck away from this guy. Mm. So he kind of took all of this happening and learned from it. And then instead of trying to pickpocket and get his ass kicked, he would just immediately start beating the people that would try to refuse him their wallet or purse or whatever it might be. So he went to, like, mugging. Yeah, so now we've graduated to mugging in broad daylight, usually with a knife. Okay. All right. So by his mid-30s, Alan is really just a fucking loser. Like, there's no nice way to say it. He's, he's got no friends. He's got a shitty job. He's a really bad petty thief. He lives alone in a farmhouse. And before, just before he turned 37... He decides it's time to quit the car dealership. He's gonna gonna devote his life to his true passion. Criming. Criming. <laughs> no shit. I have criming in here. <laughs> and in parentheses, I'm sorry, Christy, it's totally a word. No, 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 I'm cool with it. I No, I but like, like those are in my notes. I'm sorry, Christy, it's a word now. No, but that you 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 don't need to put that in your notes because it is a word. <laughs> criming. I deem it so. And if Christy deems it so, then so shall it be. Exactly. So he packs up all of his things, and he goes back to New Brunswick. Not to the same place he was living, but to a little town called Black River Bridge. And it's in the Miramichi River Valley. So about a year goes by. Alan's 38. He spent all of his savings and is about to be broke. But he has an idea. He starts going to this small shop, and the shop owner, John Glendenning, is 66. He and his wife live above the shop, and they run this little shop. They have a very simple life, very nice people. Like, everybody in town was like, they're just so sweet. And Alan starts going to the shop and talking to John. John had a safe in the shop. Alan had noticed it. And had asked John about it. John's like, yeah, that's where I keep the money from the shop. Everything like that. And Alan goes, all right. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to break it at night. And I'm just going to take the safe. I'm going to open it later. I just need to get the safe and, and take it away. That's what I'm going to do. But the safe is going to be really fucking heavy. Yeah. I'm going to need help. So he's smart enough to know that he's going to need accomplices. Oh, he's going to build a crew. He's going to build a crew. We're going to Ocean's Eleven this shit. <laughs> but nobody likes Alan. Yeah, that's the thing. He's, he's no George Clooney. <laughs> he is no George Clooney. He has no friends. And so he starts hanging out with kind of like the younger, more unsavory kids. And these are basically kids, teenagers. He starts hanging out with the skater punks and just kind of hanging around until he finds these accomplices. He found Todd Matchett and Scott Curtis. They were 18 and 19, respectively. They both had a history of petty theft. And Alan goes, and with them being younger, 
I can control them pretty easily because I'm older. I'm, I'm the obvious leader here. They do crimes. I do crimes. Strong backs because they're young. Yeah. <laughs> I think these are going to be really good. He, at this point, was described as having a very imposing aura. And I mean, spending your entire life bitter, and he's now 38, that's a lot of bitterness. I bet you could probably put that out into the world. So the men agree, and they're going to help him steal the safe, and they're going to split the money. It's not like a friendship deal. It's just, we want money. You want people to help carry the safe. Cool. Straight business. So on the night of June 21st, 1986, the three men break into the shop. They go straight to the fuse box. They cut the power. Okay. John wakes up. Uh Uh-oh. Realizes that the power has been cut. And knows that something's up. What the men did not know, and maybe it was Alan's questions about the safe, but John had taken the safe and put it upstairs. Yeah, it was, it was the questions. Probably. It seems reasonable. That weirdo was really interested in the safe. I think I'm just going to go ahead and move it up to the apartment, just in case. Yeah, if I have somebody at my house and they're like, wow, so uh, that, that's your purse. You keep your money in there? How much money do you have in there? I'd be like, we're going to move this to another room now and close the door. Yeah. Next time we're hanging out. All sorts <laughs> of questions about your purse. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So Alan sees that the safe has been moved. And he goes, well, the only logical place is if they took it upstairs because they live upstairs. And he's like, all right, guys, let's go upstairs. So they encounter John and they beat him until he stops moving. Oh, poor John. And he's 66. He's 66. Well, I was thinking about him being 66 and I wonder if he moved the safe upstairs by himself or if he got a crew together to move the safe. You think he got a crew? (laughs) Well, and then uh, they gave his wife the same treatment. Ugh. And then she was uh, sexually assaulted by the three men. Of course. So Alan goes, well, you know what? We've made such a mess that we can't possibly take the safe now. They really did make a mess of things. And they decided they just had to leave empty-handed. We have to get out because we've, we've done this thing and there's blood everywhere and we need to go. Well, Mrs. Glendenning was not dead. Ooh. She probably recognized him. She woke up naked downstairs in the shop. That's where they had taken her to rape her. And then she dragged herself back upstairs and called for help. She refused to hang up the phone until police arrived. The men did not realize that she had survived. They were quite certain they had killed her. And they did not expect police to be involved that quickly or a witness that had seen their faces. John did not survive. He was not quite so lucky. So it took less than a month for the police to track down the three of them. The whole community rallied around the the police to give any tips or anything that they could because they really wanted these people captured. This is basically a small town in Canada. Things like this don't happen here. The Glendennings were well-loved by the whole community. Yeah. 
And they really, really wanted these guys captured. It took less than a month. They got all three. They were tried in January of 1987. They had left quite a lot of evidence at the scene. And John's wife was able to testify against them. So by January 22nd, all three were convicted. Allen was convicted of second-degree murder. He was identified as the ringleader by the two younger men. He got a life sentence in prison with the possibility of parole after 18 years. Allen was very angry. He felt like that was not something that should have happened, and he was quite proud of the fact that he had killed John. So 20 years later, Todd Matchett was actually released from prison, and he gave an interview, and he wanted the public to know that he was moving out of the area and that he wanted to see Alan dead, and that would never change. Hmm. Harsh words from a Canadian. (laughs) He probably said sorry afterwards. Sorry. (laughs) So almost immediately after Alan was convicted, he decides to appeal. The first appeal was August 8th, 1987, and was thrown out because he had no viable grounds. Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't seem like you would. (laughs) No. So uh, he serves two years and files another appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. At this point, Allen was described as being a master manipulator. So much so that he actually had one of Canadians' top lawyers on his side. Did you just say Canadians? Did I? I think you did. (laughs) Canadian. Whatever. (laughs) I don't know what the hell I said. I'm drunk. I'm not. Um, (laughs) She's drinking a Coke. I am drinking a Coke. I don't know what I said. She just wants an excuse to have said Canadian. Did I? I can't believe I said that. <laughs> well, I mean, Canadian, Canada. It's it. one of the most prominent Canadian lawyers. There you go. Uh, but that appeal was unsuccessful as well, which Alan actually thought was going to happen because he had a plan B. Oh, he's breaking out. He's getting his... Uh, Knife and sawn the bars away. Kind of. So he had read somewhere that any wound around your ear is highly susceptible to infection. Who knew? I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, so he had spent some time growing his hair out. Pretty much since he he was jailed, he stopped cutting his hair or shaving his face. And then he, he bashed his own ear until there was a gaping wound behind it. He was able to hide it with his hair for several days until it was nice and infected. Okay, this is a really bizarre plan. You say bizarre, I say ballsy. (laughs) I'm just not sure how it gets to point B. You'll see. I think I got it. (laughs) So it gets infected. They have to take him to the hospital. Okay. May 3rd, 1989, he's in the hospital. He's still handcuffed, but his point of wanting to go to the hospital is one they've got tools out that he might be able to steal to either make a weapon or pick his cuffs Mm. and he's also outside of the prison so he has a better chance to escape so he he does manage even though he is uh he has an escort he does manage to steal some cuticle trimmers and he tells the cop he goes i need i need to use the restroom and the cop goes that's fine i'll wait out here you go in Terrible idea, by the way, copper. But I I think they're thinking he's harmless. There's no way he can get out of the bathroom, and I'll be right outside. 
So he goes to the bathroom and he uses these little cuticle trimmers to try to break his cuffs. It doesn't work. He breaks the trimmers instead. Cuticle trimmers are what I think they are. They're not a sturdy device. No. No. But he had a plan B for that, too. He's got, he's got plan C, D, E, F. He really does. So apparently in jail, he had fashioned a little key and he hid it inside of a cigar. And so after the, the cuticle trimmer breaks, he takes out his little key. And it works. What? How? I have no idea. I really want to know more about this little key that he made and hidden inside I mean, of a cigar. The, the locking mechanism in a, in a handcuff isn't, like, that intricate. Like, you can buy universal handcuff keys on Amazon. Yeah. So I suspect that... It's just close enough. Yeah. So it works. And he had also brought with him a small TV antenna. This is interesting. So he leaves the bathroom, gets behind the guard, and pokes the antenna into his back. And says, put your gun down. The guy doesn't know what it is. There's just something poking him in the back, right? And there was two guards, and they both put down their weapons. Then Alan takes off. He runs out into the parking lot. He abducts Peggy Olive at knife point and steals her car. He did let her go unharmed. So in his early days of criming, <laughs> he learned how to steal cars. He could hotwire and he could just carjack. And so he started alternating between those methods. He got a head start, even though it took about 10 minutes to sound the alarm that he was out. The police were putting up roadblocks and everything like that. But he had stopped a few times to change cars, either by, like, hitting the owners and stealing the car or hot-wiring them. He seemed to really like hitting the owner, throwing them onto the ground, and then stealing their car. That was, like, his favorite. This guy's just playing GTA. <laughs> kind <Yeah>. of, Yeah. <laughs> So he's not playing it like Jackson where you stand on top of the car with a chainsaw and see how long it takes for the people to get out. Jackson plays video games in just very interesting ways. He I is, mean, I've done that. <laughs> but that's almost exclusively how he plays it. That's all he does is he just stands on top of, of the car with the chainsaw. I was once at our old house, I heard him giggling like a schoolgirl from downstairs. And I come downstairs and I'm like, what is so funny? He just points at the screen and of course the guy's on top of the car with a chainsaw <laughs> and he's just dissolving in giggles. I was like, you, you that's, that's that's fine. It's the little things. We're, we're married. It's the little things. The police make a public announcement to the people of Miramichi, letting them know that we have an escaped felon. And then they go and they interview Todd Matchett and Scott Curtis because they had worked together before thinking, well, maybe he's going to come back for his, his minions. And they're like, no, we haven't talked to him since we all got arrested. Like, we have no idea what he's doing. He's definitely not coming back for us, though. I can promise you that. Alan had picked up some tips and tricks from being in jail. He listened to the more seasoned criminals and learned a few things. He'd been planning this escape for over a year. He was collecting small items to create this homemade knife. And uh, police knew that he was dangerous. They knew that he hated pretty much everybody. He blamed the entire community for his actions. Didn't feel any regret or remorse. It was everyone else's fault. 
psychologist at the Atlantic Institution said that he was a classic psychopath. And uh, it was only he who was treated unfairly, not anyone else. They also noted that he really got a thrill out of killing and would no doubt kill again. And now he's out. Oh, how nice for everyone. So, of course, the townspeople are nervous. They start traveling in groups, closing down shops early. They know this man's on the loose. Every day, there was another report of a stolen car. So they knew that he was somewhere nearby. Why is he sticking around? Why is he not hitting the road? Good question. Like, yeah, it's it, you want to get further away from the place from which you escaped, not stay in the vicinity it's where not, everybody knows you. And it's not like he's like, oh, I love this town. Like, <laughs> but maybe he feels like he needs some revenge on that town. Oh, so maybe that, yeah. Like Chatham. So speaking of Chatham, there's a local shop in Chatham. Owned by Annie Flam. She had lived there most of her life. She is now 75 years old. And she lives with her sister-in-law, Nina Flam, who was in her late 60s. The women lived above the shop. Oh, this is, this I is... feel bad for these ladies. Oh yeah, already. 26 days after his escape, it's May 29th, 1989, Alan broke into the Flam's shop. The two older women had no weapons, and they were very easy for the much younger, much stronger Alan to subdue. Alan first pinned Annie down and beat her with a blunt object, breaking her jaw. Then he raped her before killing her in her own bed. Alan then went after Nina, and uh, Nina played dead after a little while. So the police received a call a short while later that the store was on fire. They found a very dead Annie and a nearly dead Nina. Nina was uh, able to eventually tell her story, though. So she had been asleep. She heard a lamp crash to the floor in her sister's room, and that's what woke her up. She crept down the hall and looked in and found a man on top of her sister, shouting while beating her in the face. Nina could not stop her scream and then tried to run, but Alan caught her very quickly, as Alan is much younger, and he strangled her until she passed out. When she came to, she did not let on that she was awake, and she listened as Alan walked around the house until he lit it on fire. Nina knew it was on fire. She knew she couldn't just lay there and pretend anymore. And she jumped up and tried to escape, not realizing that she was running out right behind Alan. This feels like a horror movie. <laughs> he pushed her back inside the burning house. Uh, oh, jeez. But she did not give up. She kept trying to get out, and when her legs couldn't keep her upright anymore... She crawled down the steps to the shop and called the police. She did tell them that her attacker had a chain around his waist like he was a prisoner. Mm. Nina suffered second and third degree burns over 70% of her body. She lost her fingertips and toes. 
but she did survive. Annie's body was recovered, but most of her skin was scorched off from the fire. Oh, Jesus. So at this point, the, the entire community is, is just terrified. This man is out. He's still free. They don't know where he is. That is, I can speak from experience. I grew up in a town with a state hospital. Yeah. And uh, a man escaped from there one time. I'm not sure if the stories were true, and I, I don't think I've gone, I can't remember if I've looked it up or not. If I did, I need to do it again, because I've forgotten. But the story was that he had cut up a child into small pieces and buried her in his backyard. And so, yeah, and I guess managed to get away with an insanity defense. So it was at the state hospital, and he escaped. You need to get on that newspapers.com. Yes, I do. <laughs> All right, so how do we say his name? Legere? Legere, yeah. Okay. So the entire community set up what they called Legere lights, which was basically just a light on a pole in everyone's backyard so that there was no dark spots. Nice. I like it, but a bit of ingenuity there. Like, let's just have there be light. If he's doing, he needs darkness to do what he's going to do. Yeah. So they, the whole town is setting up these lights to make sure that there's not darkness. And to me, this feels very much like trying to keep a vampire at bay. Yeah. But <laughs> let's distribute the garlic. And uh, here's your cross. Uh-huh. <laughs> a little holy water in your squirt gun. Yeah. So back to our crime scene. Fire investigators said that he very deliberately set the blaze to destroy evidence. But forensic investigators retrieved hair and semen. Because this is going to be one of the first DNA cases. Huh. So at, at this time, the science of DNA is still very, very new. Mm -hmm. Canada's first DNA testing facility in Toronto was not yet in operation. Yeah, I believe the first DNA case was in England. And I want to say 1986, but don't quote me on that. I'm almost sure. I'm so quoting it was, you on it. That's the first case where they actually managed to uh, convict somebody with, with DNA. So, and, oh, oh, yeah, he just got let out, by the way. Ugh. So, obviously, there's a lot of similarities between the Glendenning case and the Flam case with the shop and the, the two older people that live above the shop. But they can't actually prove that it was Alan Legere. Yet. So, June 2nd. A Chatham contractor finds a pair of men's glasses at a site that he was landscaping. Very near a home whose owner had been uh, very surprised by a burglar the previous day. Oh. The glasses were identical to the one that Alan had been wearing at the time of his escape. So Canadian Crime Stoppers offers a $2,000 reward. Police are getting tips from Everywhere, Fredericton, Toronto, but everybody thinks that he's still in Miramichi. They had a lot of other violent incidents going on. Cars were still going missing all the time, but nobody had spotted him. They did find a few small barns and, and just like kind of desolate places that it seemed like somebody had lived in, but he was moving around quite a lot so that they were not catching up to him. In October, remember how he had that appeal through the Supreme Court? They announced that it had been officially rejected as they could not provide a ruling while he was at large. 
just because the universe is so ridiculous sometimes, I thought you were going to say it went through. <laughs> I was like bracing myself. No, they, they announced it outright that he would have to turn himself in because if he is at large, we cannot process his appeal. The police kind of knew that this was going to make Alan angry and that he would retaliate. And we're kind of expecting it. So October 13th, 1989, Alan breaks into the home of Donna Daphne and her sister Linda. Donna is 45, Linda 41. He had picked the lock and disconnected the only phone line in the house. Then he tied Linda to a chair and beat and raped Donna until Donna died and then did the same thing to Linda. He played with them for hours. Oh, I hate that. I hope that's like a newspaper phrase. Yeah, I don't like that ever. wording. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when he was done and both sisters were gone, he lit the house on fire. Firefighters were very quick to respond. The sisters' mutilated bodies were found. And they were actually able to collect fingerprints and semen from the crime scene. And now they had concrete proof because the DNA was matching. When the bodies were found, one of the sisters was tucked into her bed. Oh, so now he's posing them. The bulb at the back door had been uh, partially unscrewed from the socket so that there was no light. Crime scene practically identical to the flam crime scene. And police learned that Alan had once had a relationship with Linda. Ooh. And this is where the term monster of the Miramichi was Monster of the Miramichi. Yes. Monster of Miramichi. Michi. Monster of Miramichi was coined by the media. So after you get tired of, I don't know, killing elderly and women, who's your next target? Children. Uh, yeah. How Children. about a priest? Oh, well, oh, uh, yeah, no, that's, that too. that's mean. We, we thought he was going to zig. He zagged. I, yeah. I, I'm a little better with a priest, but only a little. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, yeah. <laughs> So now it's uh, Thursday, November 16th, still in 1989, and Father James Smith doesn't show up for Mass. This is a priest who shows up for every Mass no matter what. And they go to his house and find that he has been brutally tortured. His rib cage was broken on both sides. They said it seemed as though somebody had jumped up and down on his Torso with force. Jesus mm. Christ. His eyes were gouged out. No. Oh. Mm. There was evidence that uh, they tried to rip his tongue out <gasps> oh, mm. as it was hanging very loosely and on one side of his mouth, and several of his teeth were broken. Mm. And there was also evidence saying that as this was going on, he was being dragged room to room. Bloody footprints to the garage showed that the victim's car was stolen after this. 
Now they found the car and bloody boots and one of the victim's coats near a train station 90 kilometers away. They got an ID that it was Alan. He bought a ticket to Montreal. So police contacted the authorities in Quebec because that's where the train was stopped. And they searched the train and Alan is not on it. Almost every lead they had was a dead end. No pun intended. Same day, a woman calls the police. She was a few hours outside of Miramichi, and she saw a car stranded with a man bent over the hood. She stopped to try to help, and Alan Legier appeared from behind her and demanded that she take him and his hostage, who was the one over the hood of the car, uh-huh. to Miramichi. They stopped at a gas station. Alan took her car keys as he went to put gas in the car. But this was a smart lady. And she had her spare set of keys just in case. Oh. She used those keys to get the hell away and call the cops and let them know where she had just stranded Alan Legier. Did she have the hostage with her? Do you so, know? a little bit on the hostage. He was a taxi driver by the name of Ron Gomke. And Alan had hijacked the taxi. But this is Canada, and this is November. It is really nasty out. There's blowing snow and icy roads. Gomke lost control of the car and plowed into a snowbank. And then the woman that stopped, her name was Michelle Mercer. When they got away, Gomke was still in her car. Okay, good, good. I, yes, I was worried yes. about him. Okay, I was going to say, I swear I have it. I have it in my notes somewhere. So then those two get away. They call the cops. Alan hijacked a transport truck and told the driver, Brian Golding, to take him to Moncton. Now, the police have already heard from, from Michelle Mercer, and they have poured into the area, and they set up roadblocks, and they stopped the truck, and they got him. Oh, good. <laughs> and they have him back behind bars. And, and this was actually kind of like a really sweet thing, because the entire town was relieved, and the newspapers reported that neighbors were going outside and hugging each other, and they started putting up Christmas lights for the first time all season because people finally felt safe enough to go outside. Wow. So, on August 17, 1990, Allen was sentenced to nine years for escaping police custody, kidnapping, and common assault. Those were only for the escape. So it was kidnapping of the police officer Okay. with the antenna in his okay. back. Okay. November 20th of 1990, then he gets his four counts of first-degree murder. The trial didn't actually begin until August 28th, 1991. lasted two months. But all that DNA evidence 
was now processed. Uh-huh. So Alan thought that he was really slick. He would change his appearance. He thought he killed most of his witnesses. But then November 3rd, 1991, the verdict returned by the 11-member jury, six women, five men, guilty on all counts. Justice David Dixon told them, I don't usually comment on verdicts, but let me say this. Don't lose too much sleep over your verdicts. (laughs) (laughs) It only took Alan 10 days to file an appeal. Loves him a good appeal. He does, but he's not going to get them. Um, So he's currently living in Quebec prison these days. He was moved from a super maximum security prison to the regular maximum security prison. This sentence reminds me of tampons. (laughs) (laughs) Very light. (laughs) Yeah, so, so like as he gets older, I guess he gets to go to regular maximum. An officer that had interrogated Alan after the first killing says that Alan told them he kept a hit list of all the people that have prosecuted him and he has unfinished business. Oh, that's yeah. really going to help with that appeal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that should, that should help. Yeah, so uh, this was just last year, January 2021. Parole board rejected Alan's request for supervised release. Uh, he, he was told that his risk is not manageable and that the victim harm is still felt to this day. And Alan doesn't seem to understand at all. He said, yes, I understand that part. But I don't understand why they can't forgive me, why they can't forget. (laughs) I mean, they are Canadian. (laughs) I said I'm sorry. But he didn't. I know it's such a cliche, but honestly, the time that we went to Toronto, I I was apologized to more than I've been my entire life combined. So it's it's an earned cliche. (laughs) Well, but now he's denying killing two of the four people that uh, they're saying he killed. He goes, I was present, but I wasn't the only one. I was found guilty, but they don't have it right. He doesn't have a grasp on what DNA is. (laughs) No, no, I don't think he does. I don't think he does. But that is the story of the monster of the Miramichi. Wow. Thank you, Cody, for bringing us into that world. <laughs> I tried to make it as light as I could. I was just saying, that's the toned down version. <laughs> that is the toned down version. Yikes. All right. Well, Amber, thank you. That was, um, I did honestly feel like I was in a horror movie at times. I was just sitting there. I was like, no, no. Like, especially when she was right behind him, when, when she was trying to escape from the burning house, that had a very horror movie moment. Like, yes. Feral. Yes. I, it, it, it does. Well, like, there's, like, a couple things that you can almost see in your head, like Mrs. Glendenning crawling up the stairs to call the cops, and, and then Nina trying to run through the fire until her legs give out, and then crawling until she can get somewhere safe. There's a lot of, like, horror movie-esque scenes in this. I, the, him j- jumping on the priest's chest, oh. trying to rip his tongue out, like, that was a little bit... Yeah, I don't more know, vivid a picture that I needed. I don't know which of my body parts to hug and cover. I'm like, I'm like trying to like hug my rib cage, but also cover my mouth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so nobody can get to my tongue. Yeah, he didn't a, get it the whole way out. There's a oh. new fear I didn't need, know I needed to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, now that we've uh, we've relived all of that, 
It You're was, welcome. It wasn't traumatic enough the first time. We had to really just pound it in. We had to really jump on its ribcage. The Cliff Notes version. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm going to be telling you guys about a woman who lived about 100 years before. So we're going to hop in our time machine and... I guess a time machine sounds kind of like a fax machine. Um, or, you know, early internet. We're gonna... I was going to say, I wouldn't really trust it. I feel like it would eat one of my legs. <laughs> it might. It might, yeah. Paper jam. A man in Brazil dies from severe burns, maybe from a UFO. In Washington, D.C., Jack the Slasher breaks into a house and barely steals anything, but dumps molasses all over a piano and cuts up curtains and sofas. I'm Andrew Gable, and on Forgotten Darkness, I'll look through old newspapers and other sources to find those lesser-known stories of yesteryear. I look mostly at true crime and unexplained phenomena. So if either of those topics sounds like your sort of thing, check us out. You can find the podcast at ForgottenDarkness.Podbean.com or on most podcast apps. of your emergency. Your world can change in the blink of an eye. He walked into the bedroom and you know that she had been murdered. So he's running up and down, screaming, oh my God, someone called 911. There are two men killing a girl. I know my son and he would not go that long without saying anything to anyone. Safety can be an illusion and reality a nightmare. So how do you steal a person, a grown person? Unspeakable crimes can penetrate any small town, big family, pretty face, or innocent child. And in the wake of a loved one's murder or disappearance, there is nothing more cruel or desperate as silence. Why won't people talk about it? That's another thing. People don't want to talk about it around here. For the families of the missing and murdered, they gambled with their sanity as they lose hope in closure and settle for justice. That's where the cold case playing cards come in. In each episode of the Dealing Justice podcast, your hosts Jennifer Dubasek and Lori Jennings will spotlight one card from the cold case playing card deck. Hear the victim's story from the friends and family who knew them best. Her mom will never stop fighting until she finds out what happens to her daughter. Learn about the crime and help close the case. Welcome to season two. We're not just playing cards, we're dealing justice. So uh, we're going to go to the 1800s and uh, talk about Elizabeth Bigley and Lizzie Hoover and Madame Rosa and Madame DeVere and Mrs. Dr. Wallace Springsteen as well as Lydia Scott, Lydia Klingen, and Cassie Chadwick. Okay, so is this a brothel? There, eventually a brothel does become get involved, yeah. But no, I was going to say with all the madams. That's really like I was leaning towards brothel with all the madams. Yeah. I get it, I get it, yeah. But I also remember in the late 1800s, another group of people who might call themselves madam would be like spiritualists and, you know... I thought that very briefly, and then I was like, there's too many people involved, and they're all girls. So we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Okay, so Elizabeth Betsy Bigley was born on a farm in Eastwood, Ontario, 
Oh, and by the way, this this isn't a fully Canadian crime. We're going to go down to the U.S. at some point, and a lot of stuff will happen there. But she's a Canadian criminal, so she, she fits. So she was born on a farm in Eastwood, Ontario, on October 10th, 1857. She was one of eight children, six girls and two boys, and she was the third daughter. Life was pretty normal on the farm growing up. It was just, you know, nothing really exciting. Her mother was characterized as no-nonsense. With that many kids, you can't have any nonsense. You really can't, no. Nonsense I mean, you can't allow any. There's going to be nonsense, (laughs) but... You have to take a stand against it. And her father was, quote, a plain, honest man who worked industriously and supported his family to the best of his ability. Which is probably not very much. I mean, eight kids. Well, he ran a farm. He had a farm. That was worth $4,000, which is over $115,000 today. No wow. And he was also a track master for the railway. Okay, so he was doing all right, most likely. He, he was a railroad man. He wasn't doing too bad. Now, Betsy, Elizabeth, she did have a speech impediment due to having lost her hearing uh, one year. So she tended to be more on the quiet side. And when she did speak, she tended to speak very deliberately. It sort of had an effect on people. Then, in 1878, shortly after turning 21, Betsy kind of ran away. She went to a barber shop about 27 miles south of her hometown. And here is a description from the Brantford Weekly Expositor. Her appearance was such as to attract attention at once. She wore a neat cap, trimmed with fur. A long ulster gave her the appearance of being taller than she really is. Her hair hung in graceful beauty over her shoulders. In her hand, she carried a small valise, and the shapely hand that carried it was decked with a plentiful supply of rings. Her regular and intellectual features and her speech indicated a person of more than ordinary education. Hmm. Hmm. So she goes to this barber shop. What do you think she does at the barber shop? Crimes. Not quite. Okay. She asks for a haircut. Her hair was well past her shoulders, and she wanted it cut all off. Like pixie-style haircut. She's trying to change her appearance, so that, yeah. And uh, when all that was done, she stood forth a rather rakish-looking youngster whose eyes might make sad havoc among the lasses. So she was a handsome fella? Yes, yes, and she had one more request. She would like a fake mustache. You can go to the barbershop and get a fake mustache? Apparently so. Well, mustaches were so the thing during this time period. And we've seen in cases from around the 1880s, 1890s, etc. That like every single picture has a mustache. The Hayward case that we did last week. All of the pictures of the men involved were mustaches. So I imagine there are some people who can't grow facial hair or who just don't grow it really great. So... They mustache toupee. Exactly. Get, get yourself a mustache. Get yourself a lip toupee. So the next thing she tried to do was sell off a gold watch. There's also something in here about her trying to get a local farmer to give her a $250 promissory note. So basically, you know, like... I owe you. Yeah, essentially. And uh, that was about it for everyone. Everyone was like, okay, something's going on here. So the chief of police took her in. He handed her over to the Justice of the Peace, Charles Chadwick. She told them her name, 
and said she only had one dollar on her as she had expected her railway trip to be free thanks to her dad's job and it wasn't so she'd spent all her money there and then i think she was trying to basically exchange the gold watch for money to pay for the haircut and such and the and the lip toupee when they asked her why are you cutting your hair she said, well, I have severe headaches, and there's a doctor at Princeton who recommended this. So she's just doing what the doctor says she should do, and they're like, okay, well, but the fake mustache? Oh, well, it's for her brother, of course. It's not for her. And so they telegrammed her dad, and he and one of her brothers came to town that night. And collected her. Well, first they identified the watch as a family heirloom from her mother's side. Oh. Yes. And they took her home. The police basically released her. No charges filed. She had an, an interesting habit of carrying around calling cards. And basically like the casual, like social business card of the day. That proclaimed that she was an heiress to $15,000. I'm just having a hard time understanding why that's on your card. So I'll explain. But here is this card in the picture here. I am an heiress to $15,000. Yeah, essentially, yes. <laughs> That's just yep. what it says. That's all it says. <laughs> yeah. She's got those cards. When she meets somebody, she'll, you know, show them her card. And uh, this is how it worked. She would go to a store, buy something expensive, make the check out for more than the cost of the item, and then basically ask for cash back. If anyone balked, she would just show them her heiress card. <laughs> I, st like, I mean, I understand the reasoning now, but it still seems really strange. It is, it is quite strange, but it seemed to work. Somewhat. So you need to get your calling cards that say, I am a podcaster. <laughs> yes. Joel likes it when I proclaim, I am a podcaster. <laughs> I don't know why, but he does. <laughs> it tickles my fancy. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so... There were also stories of her carrying on with some local guys, including a married man, quote, who was associated with her case in a most unpleasant way. Huh? I, I, I guess it was just maybe more scandalous because he was married, perhaps? I'm not sure. It is kind of strange. Or she maybe threatened him with blackmail, so there was more involved than just your standard affair. Yeah, I, I feel like that in a most unpleasant way. There's a, there's a euphemism there, but I can't really dig what it is covering. Yeah. So Maybe like the backseat of a Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it said uncomfortable place. That's not what he meant. <laughs> <laughs> the next time that she shows up in the paper, it's nearly three weeks after the haircut incident. And she's in jail for forgery. She had gotten her fake mustache, as well as a handsome wig for some reason, and bought a men's suit. And uh, she bought an organ with one of these promissory notes, promissory notes. When it came time to pay it, she couldn't. So she's, she doesn't ha actually have money. <laughs> you know, she just has this Wait, card that says so that she's eventually going to have 15000 So that's a lie? Her card's a lie? Her card is a lie. For shame. So she said, oh, I'll, I've got a note from somebody else who has the cash. Here you go. And so finally, she's busted for forgery. She had also tried to pass herself off as the daughter of a renowned shipping family and used that to buy on credit about $10,000 in stuff. That's 
$2.8 million today. Holy in US. shit. 3.6 Canadian. Hmm. That's a lot of money. So she's in jail. A reporter interviews her in jail and she gives her name as Elizabeth Pelvina Bigley. It's so close to pelvis and also penis. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a terrible, terrible name. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a terrible name. She said she was currently engaged to a lawyer in Chicago and basically put the fault for any financial misdeeds at the feet of just about anybody but herself. This was all everybody else's fault. It was a misunderstanding or somebody's trying to set me up, all this stuff. And she pleaded insanity and pulled it off. She proceeded to act as weirdly as possible in court and her family also said that she'd had a long fever as a child, and then after that she would just go into these long trances where she just seemed to be not there. So, uh, this from uh, a book I read on it that'll be in the sources. Uh, the author's name is Crowell. Crowell says, quote, At her trial, 22-year-old Betsy debuted her considering acting ability by sitting motionless and disengaged at the defense table while clothed in an adolescent girl's dress and bonnet. Her head resting on one hand, Betsy rarely stirred except to make a silly face at someone or to stick her tongue out at the jury. <laughs> Despite Betsy's odd behavior, many of the men present agreed with the Crown's prosecutor, who described Betsy as rather attractive, because that's what this is about. Yes. Yeah. The presiding judge, however, saw an obviously deranged girl. He strongly suggested to the jurymen that a verdict of not guilty by reason of temporary insanity would be appropriate. And so they deliberated for, anybody want to guess? 36 minutes. 12 minutes. Two hours. Really? Oh, really. There's, there's some longer deliberations in this one. It kind of surprises you. So she uh, basically just gets to go home after all that. They don't put her in like a mental ward? No, she's not guilty by reason of insanity, but, so that means she goes free. But now, like, in the United States, my understanding is, like, not guilty by reason of insanity means you're going to an institute. I mean, it should, but uh, it, this was also the, you know, 1880s. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, that's... <laughs> well, yeah. it was the eight, late 1870s. It's been a minute. It's, it's been a minute, yeah. So, not guilty, you're crazy, go home. Exactly. Okay. That's basically, once you were deemed insane by society, you know, if you didn't go to an institution then it was just your family's problem to deal with. So, speaking of her family, uh, her dad died in 1879, so just uh, the year after she was uh, on trial. He died of a broken heart. Perhaps, perhaps. And uh, then she was shipped off to the U.S. Thanks, Canada. <laughs> she headed to Cleveland in the early 1880s. She had a sister, Alice York, who was living there. And so she lived there for a while. She borrowed money from her brother-in-law and used that to open a dressmaking school that didn't teach a whole hell of a lot to the young ladies who applied to it. Yeah, I feel like we would know more about her dressmaking ability that if she was going to be opening a store. Right, exactly. Maybe her name her would... school. Yeah, her name would be on something, you know, like a clothing tag. She loved to get a good loan. You need collateral to get a loan. And so she used her sister's furniture while the couple was out oh. of town, signing a fake name. After a little while, her sister's husband kicked her out. 
but he did not report the crime to the police. Probably regretted that, because Betsy continued using her sister's name for credit at shops all around town. Until her brother-in-law put a stop to that by telling all the shops that he wasn't going to pay up if Betsy was the one who made the purchase. She had several other schemes going on. She was swindling moneylenders. She borrowed $50 from a politician and $30 from an attorney. She stayed at a boarding house and mortgaged the landlady's furniture. <laughs> she, I mean, this seems to be a running theme here. Yeah. There are definitely some themes, as we're going to see. She, her life is thematic. Your story was cinematic. My story is thematic. And uh, so there's a tale almost definitely made up that she married an English officer who was part of the nobility that went with him to Europe, but his family looked down on her. And so when he was killed in a fox hunt, she settled the inheritance with his family very much in her favor. That's a bunch of bullshit, is what that is. Yeah. But at age 25, she managed to snag herself a doctor. Oh, there you go. Dr. Wallace S. Springsteen. He eventually, in 1902, would market Dr. Wallace S. Springsteen's Mountain Rose, the Great Uterine Remedy. Oh. <laughs> Said to aid in cases of various female complaints, dysmenorrhea, menstruation, sterility, inflammation, catarrh, menorrhagia, menorrhagia. I, I, I'm not going to get it right. Somebody yelled at me for my pronunciation of edema. Edema. Prolapse, ulcer, and piles. <laughs> So those are all the fun things that it absolutely 100% doesn't fix. It's snake oil. Oh, yes. It's 100% snake oil. But Betsy was long gone from his life at that point. But back in the 18, early 1890s or, or 1880s, they were married. By some subtle and peculiar influence, she wove her charms around the doctor's heart and the spell was not broken until her victim discovered she had secured a mortgage on his property. I was sure you were saying furniture. <laughs> well, uh, her creditors were hounding her, and the fact that there was an article about the marriage in the paper didn't really help her hide. That brought everybody to Dr. Springsteen's door. He hired a PI, and he found out about her long history of stuff, and uh, so she, she wasn't quite the innocent, regular young lady she presented herself as, and so he kicked her out. How uh, long do you guys think this marriage lasted as the, them living together? Four months. Three weeks. Nine days. Oh! This all happened real quick. Man, she's busy. <laughs> yeah. She then moves to a boarding house in Cleveland, where she would be known by a couple of names. Madame La Rosa and Mrs. Scott. Uh, the spring after her short-lived marriage, she traveled to Erie, Pennsylvania, and spent the night in a hotel. It was there that she got very, very sick. She had a hemorrhage of the lungs, as they put it, <laughs> and everyone around her was very concerned. She explained to them that she had plenty of money. She was just temporarily embarrassed, broke. And so a lot of these people offered this unfortunate woman who's going through so much loans on the premise that her problems would be short-lived, she'd bounce back, and she would return the money. 
I'm temporarily embarrassed right now, too. <laughs> I'm temporarily embarrassed for her. So, uh, they, you know, all, all these people gave it a bit of time and then wrote to the address that she'd given them, trying to get their money back. What they received in return was actually a note saying, sorry, she's dead. I mean, you, you lent money to a woman who said she was having a lung hemorrhage, which, by the way, if she was actually, like, presenting physical symptoms of that, like bleeding... She's got uh, the consumption. Maybe, but, but, like, how is she doing that? Or is she saying it's just an internal bleed or something like that? I'm not sure. No, nobody ever goes into those details. But in my head, I'm like... Is she, does she have like little blood capsules? (laughs) You know know how I would do, how I would do it, right? Is I would get like a rag and put a little bit of blood on it and then I'd cough Mm. into it and just show the, you know. Yeah. That's how I would do it. There you go. She may have used these loans that she got from the Erie people to get herself established in a truly respectable and honest career Mm. as a fortune teller. There you go. Possibly under the name Madame La Rose or Madame Devere. Her own tale, English by birth, French by name, and an American by adoption. Her house, she claims, has been the resort of some of the most prominent gentlemen of the city. They went, she says, on purely professional business to have the day's fortunes told. Eminent bankers and grain merchants were wont to visit her daily to find out how the wind blew in dangerous business ventures. But resort can also mean brothel. I was going to say, it sounds like she's hooking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, she married again. It was learned that she had married a farmer named J.R. Scott in Trumbull County. She was divorced from Scott in a few months, and Scott was minus his farm. She mortgaged it. She actually got it in the prenup. Yep. She had him uh, sign a prenuptial agreement saying that, you know, she'd had a previous relationship where she'd been abused. And so she just wanted that security. And then she got the the farm. Yeah. Literally got the farm. Yeah. Yeah. Then she supposedly married a Dr. Hoover, who she says was unfaithful to her. In 1886, she's back in Cleveland and now she has a baby who she names Emile Hoover. Around this time, she also took on the name Lydia Hoover. She was boarding with a Mrs. Hoover, so I feel like this is where all the inspiration for the Hoover stuff came. Like, mm-hmm. she literally just took her landlady's last name and gave it to her baby and said, this is mine now. I feel so bad for this baby. Yeah. She was doing her usual game of getting men to give her money. She scoots out of Cleveland for a bit and shows up in Toledo in 1890 as Madame Devere. Boy, was she something. At Toledo, her career was as dramatic as it was spectacular. She could be seen in the finest of carriages driving around the city, and her entertainments were known as elaborate, the cost of flowers alone being high. She was also telling her story about the wealthy man in England that she'd married, and she said she got an Annual income of $1,000 from that, which is only $31,000. That doesn't seem like that's very impressive. I mean, as far as this is my inheritance from a wealthy man. Like, a million dollars, maybe. You gotta keep it low and believable. That's, that's just one of her many sources of income. Yes. None. Yeah. 
she uh, well, she has sources of income. They're just not uh, legal. <laughs> I, I still think she's hooking. She got, got into some trouble in Toledo, and it's kind of familiar. It was claimed she hypnotized a man named Myers and through him forged notes, checks, etc., thereby securing thirteen thousand from one bank and three thousand from another. That's four hundred and ten thousand and ninety-five thousand, respectively. So now wow. she's going for the big stuff. Yeah. This is the first time we see the hypnotism mentioned in this case. That's in a retrospective from years later, so we can kind of see that the idea has stuck. And we talked about hypnotism last week, and we're going to talk about hypnotism next week, and those, these cases are all in the same time period. So There was more than one case against her, and it's hard in the papers to tell which is which because it's all forgery and fraud, mm-hmm. and they're also tried like almost within a month of one another. So it's, it's kind of difficult to tell exactly what happens when, but in the other case, she was arrested with a man for forging a promissory note for 5000 which is 150000 a day. And then in late March of 1890, she was acquitted of one charge of forgery, apparently due to a preponderance of circumstantial evidence. While she was in jail, though, Local ladies of note could come visit her if they brought her fresh fruit and other treats. So, Wow. The guards just looked the other way. She did have to stay in jail after her acquittal, though, because she had more charges to be on trial for. The man... Where is her baby during all of this? Yeah, with her sister, I'm thinking. Later on, actually, the baby is not with her sister. The baby is with one of her... Cough, cough, employees, um, possibly. Okay. So that might have been the case this time, too. At that point, that's years later. The kid's like 11. Oh, wow. So, oh, 11 is like point, the 1800s. He's got a wife and kids. Yeah, at this point, he is uh, he is four. So he's, he's, you know, he's dating. Yeah, he, he's getting ready. <laughs> yeah. The man who was accused of being her partner in the whole forgery venture was tried separately It wasn't looking great, and so his lawyer pulled out what was a very unique defense for the day. Hypnotism. Betsy had hypnotized him. They used the theory from a French neurologist that we talked about last week that one can be hypnotized into doing things they wouldn't normally do, like a little bit of criming, you know? Gotta do the criming. Gotta do the criming. Now... This was five years before the hypnotism idea would come up in the Harry Hayward trial, and just eight months before the hypnotism defense comes up in the case we're covering next week, the Gouffet case. Gouffet. Gouffet. And uh, it actually worked this time. He got a not guilty. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. The papers referred to several others that she'd supposedly hypnotized. It is asserted that a prominent doctor gave up all and was completely under her control. He is today a physical wreck. A bank president, since dead, was deceived, and how much he loaned her will never be learned. Two express officials and a grain merchant are said to have been caught for large sums. I think that maybe she just gives really good blowjobs. <laughs> Everybody is easily fooled by her. Everybody just loses their common sense the second that she's around them. It's amazing. She's really something. She starts being called an, an adventuress in the papers, which Crowell says is the highest compliment Victorian-era writers could pay a woman accused of scandalous behavior 
and financial chicanery. I think that's the first time chicanery has been used on this podcast. Nice. (laughs) Sometimes I pick quotes just because I like the words in them. I'm not going to lie. It's who I am and I'm fine with it. She was found guilty in the second trial in May and sentenced to 10 years hard labor. Wow. The hard labor was making uniforms for her fellow prisoners. Oh. So the hard labor was what some people do as a hobby. You know, like it wasn't like breaking rocks. Yeah, no breaking rocks, none of that. She's not even picking up litter. She's sewing. You know, which I mean, she had a dressmaking school. She at least she did know how to do it. Yeah, especially in those years growing up on a farm. Yeah, I think you learned to sew right about the time. You know, well, right about the time you start dating, right? So four, (laughs) three, three, yeah, three-ish. Yeah, I mean, by three you can definitely darn socks at least one hundred percent. Yes. I just learned how to darn socks, actually. I still don't know. I, I don't know that I'll ever do it, because, like, once a sock gets a hole, it's <laughs> done, but... Can you teach my husband your ways, please? He's always very proud of himself when he throws away, like, old socks or shoes, and I'm like, yeah, good for you, sweetie. Uh, uh, socks? I have no sympathy for <laughs> shoes. I will wear them until, like, I they make my feet wet. The man has duct-taped slippers back together. The sole to the top. He has bright red duct tape, too. We're not seems, even... Yeah. Seems reasonable. Yeah. So... So she's in prison, making uniforms. Her belongings were foreclosed upon and auctioned off. They should have just been given back to who they came from. (laughs) Yeah, true. Well, the bank probably reclaimed the furniture because you know there was a mortgage on it. Or seven. Uh, So there were, supposedly, there was a photo album that had pictures of some of her clairvoyant clients. The men who had come to her to have their fortunes told, which is now a euphemism. Totally is. More than 60 men, all widowers, of course, wink, wink, no one ever found it. So that little juicy item was lost to history. I can't wait till somebody finds a box in the attic. Do not open until I'm dead. (laughs) (laughs) So she was like reading tea leaves. Exactly. Mm. Yes, yes. She was dealing their tarot cards. As for her interactions in prison, she was said to be a model prisoner. And while the authorities in charge of the prison didn't necessarily think she was truly clairvoyant, they did see that she had amazing powers of persuasion. I was going to say, why didn't she just hypnotize her way out of prison? Yeah, see, that's that's a good question. It's because she couldn't actually hypnotize. (laughs) You're saying that her partner was a liar? She's just, yeah. Yes, (laughs) that's exactly what we're saying. But she did tell the warden two things. She told him he would lose a bunch of money in a business deal he had going in Cincinnati and that he'd die of cancer. Both of those things happened. Wow. That is weird. That, I will say, is very weird. She got parole in 1893 with the help of letters from powerful people like the county sheriff and the very prosecutor who had put her there. Wow. Who is now a congressman. Hmm. And there was this idea that the prison was detrimental to her health. She might have tuberculosis. I mean, everybody had tuberculosis. But even then, it took nine months after those letters for the parole to come through. And that was due to the governor, William McKinley, interceding on her case. He would be president just four short years later and would commute the life sentences of Charles Harrison a few years after that which we talked about in The Great Train Robbery in uh, episode 142. Mm-hmm. So he's just 
commuting and paroling left and right, just making sure that there's lots of criminals out there for us to talk about. Yeah. Thank you for your service to our podcast, William McKinley. And he you was know, assassinated. I was like, he was assassinated. He was assassinated in, I believe, 1901. Okay. So she was supposed to, the parole plan was, she was going to work as a dressmaker for her sister for $1 a day, $31. She did go back to Cleveland, but here she's going all in on the Hoover identity. Now her name is Cassie Hoover. Even with somewhat more modest means, she still somehow manages to be a fashion plate. She is always just the best dressed in the room. She was also a frequent visitor to the post office, checking for mail under her various names, probably related to various scams she had going on. These two combine where we have a postal clerk commenting on her outfits. She seemed to wear a different, beautiful dress every time she visited, which was up to five times a day. Oh, like... <laughs> You say five times like a week? All right. <laughs> no, five times a day. Wow, that's a lot of costume changes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I get post office anxiety, so just like writing that sentence, I was like, oh, no thanks. Yeah, I don't go to the post office if I, I can avoid it. If I can avoid it, I don't go, yes. The postal clerk said, get ready for some shade. The gowns were significant, and on some women would have been stunning. But I don't think she was the woman. <laughs> wow. I think prison was a little hard on her, even though she was only in there for a couple years. So dressmaking didn't seem to be her long-term plan. She had another business in mind, and that was the oldest business. She opened up a brothel in Cleveland. But she had an eye on someone. Another doctor. Dr. Leroy Shippen Chadwick, which it's strange because the judge in her very first trial was also a Chadwick. So just kind of some weirdness there. No relation that I could see. He had been widowed a few years ago. Now, there's a couple stories about how they met. Uh, there's uh, the story that he was doing a house call at a house of ill repute. They met. She gave him the impression that she was of the same class and breeding as him. And he was like, what you doing in a brothel? Exactly. And she was like, oh, my, you can't be serious. I would never. I'm clutching my pearls. Where's my fainting couch? Bring me the smelling salts. She is just absolutely, she can't believe it. How did I end up here? My goodness. This is a brothel? This is a brothel? I thought that moaning was just, uh, honestly, I can't come up with anything right now. I got nothing. It's a dentist's office. <laughs> I thought it was a dentist's office. There you go. Thank you, Joel. Coming in clutch. I thought a poor defenseless animal was in here. <laughs> Is there a cat stuck in the walls? And of course, there's no one better to faint in front of than a doctor. He, uh, I'm guessing, judging by the medical standards of the day, I'm thinking he brought her back to consciousness by like smacking her across the face several times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then at her request, he took her somewhere less scandalous. This was her own damn brothel. And there was another story that he was a client at the brothel. I'm buying that one. Yeah, it seems right. Uh, he would only say, when asked, that he had terrible rheumatism in his back, and Betsy was the only one who'd been able to ease the pain with one of her massages. Yeah, she's got that rheumatism medicine. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's massaging him and easing his pain. Mm -hmm. So he lays there. Yes. Mm. And she mm. rides him like a pony. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, some stories have a happy ending. I guess we can say that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they were married the next year. Uh, there are questions about whether he knew about her son, Emil, who, like I said earlier, was around 11. And the idea is that he was likely being looked after by one of the sex workers that uh, he also didn't know about. <laughs> or didn't know she employed, supposedly. There are other stories that she did move Emil into Chadwick's house, though. What really attracted her to him wasn't necessarily his fortune. He didn't really have one. He had some family money in the family home, which was on Millionaire's Row, ah. also known as Euclid Avenue. And that's where the richest families of the city lived, including the Rockefellers, who had a country estate and summer home there. I was actually in Cleveland and on Euclid Avenue, uh, what, like last week? Yeah, two weeks oh gosh. Ago. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. So who knows? Maybe you drove past uh... I probably did, just didn't realize it. Yeah. Well, I mean, how could you? You're not clairvoyant like Betsy. I know. <laughs> Damn it. Too bad. She was trying her best to ingratiate herself with them, to get in good with them. And they were just kind of looking at her like, who's this weirdo? And they're like, she's going to mortgage our furniture. Yeah. I think that she might be looking at our Chesterfield a little too closely. Watch <laughs> the Davenport. Yeah, she's casing the Chesterfield. <laughs> Watch the Davenport show title. <laughs> Once again, you did it. <laughs> Joel was so pleased that the Mayor McCheese line made it as the subtitle. Way too pleased. <laughs> You're on a roll. So uh, she had a plan brewing. Was it to steal the good china? Well, it was it was a little more ambitious than that, shall we say. Turn the millionaire's row estate into a brothel? <laughs> mortgage the millionaire row estates. So uh, the seeds of this plan, you could see that they had been uh, wriggling through the soil ever since her teen years when she carried around that calling card, heiress to $15,000. So she goes to New York City. Then she went to a famous hotel, the Holland House. One of the notable things about this place is that it had a $350,000 wine cellar. Old-timey money. That is $11.7 million today. That is some wine. I guess, yeah. So she goes into the lobby and waits until she sees the man she's looking for. She's got a particular person in mind that she knows is going to be here. His name is James Dillon, and he is not a stranger. He is a friend of her husband's and a lawyer as well. So she kind of does a, a very graceful, sneaky bump into, you know, oh, look, it's you. Oh, fancy meeting you here. And uh, then says that she's here to go to her father's house and says, would you mind escorting me uh, to my father's house? I'd, I'd really appreciate it. And he says, of course. It's about three and a half miles. They take a carriage there. She never mentions her father's name, so when they get to the address, uh, he's gobsmacked. Because this isn't a house, it's a damn four-story mansion. Isn't her father also dead and Canadian? There's that, but they don't, he doesn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her father is Andrew Carnegie. Yeah, that's, this is his house. This is his mansion. And I'd just like to say, an obligatory, from the bottom of our hearts to uh, your rotting corpse, Andrew Carnegie, fuck you. Yeah, really? 
from uh, from all of Johnstown. We would like to give you that because uh, thanks. Thanks. Here's the bird, Mr. Carnegie. Yes. Thank you for uh, being part of a very nice hunting and, and fishing country club that uh, took 2,209 people's lives. And don't give me that crap about, oh, he rebuilt the library. No, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, he did do that. But probably only because another club member who was the founder of the library that was destroyed by the flood had also lost his wife and daughter in the flood. So the tiny bit of guilt that he felt... Was for his buddy. Yeah, yeah. So, anyhow, I just needed to get that out. Every time I see his name, I get a little angry. And I'm not even from here. So this is just my adopted I'm hometown. I'm not from here. I'm not I'm from angry. here either. That's true. We're all huh. kind of... Uh, we're kind of transplants, aren't we? <laughs> uh-huh. That's funny. And uh, so she spends about a half an hour inside this giant mansion. Then she comes back out. Comes back to the carriage. How did she get into the mansion? Okay, all right. So she goes in pretending that she's looking for someone who used to be a servant there. And she's, you know, a society woman who is, is looking to hire this girl but wants to get references. And so she talks to the housekeeper and she manages to stretch out this interaction. I mean, she's, she's even going to the lengths of, oh my, how, your floors, they're so delightfully clean. Who cleans them? What do they use? What's their secret? She's, she's really, really just milking every word for how much she can. And the fact that she speaks kind of slowly and deliberately could also extend that conversation I as well. I guess it was also a different time. Like, yeah. Like if I like went knocking on a mansion door and was like, hey, they're just going to shut the door in my face immediately. And it's a giant four-story mansion. If she goes in and asks for the housekeeper, she could be all the way on the other side. And she could st- be standing there waiting for 10 minutes of the, that half hour. Yeah. But yeah, she did manage to stretch it out. So, uh, you know, he asks, Dylan says, uh, who's your daddy? And not in that way. And she does the whole, oh, this is just between me and you. I need you to take this secret to your grave. I am Andrew Carnegie's illegitimate daughter. And I was just dropping by to pick up some more guilt money. Because he feels super bad and also wants to keep me a secret. And so... uh, Periodically, he'll just give me money, or he'll give me promissory notes. Have I been saying it wrong? Prom- I've been going back and forth because I figure I'm 50-50. I have promissory in my notes, but I feel like I wanted to write it promissory every time. <laughs> I'm good with either. Okay, so notes. Yeah, money notes. There we go. Money notes. Smile Money notes. Smile use. One for 250000 and one for 500000 He's, uh, that totals about $25 million today. And she shows him the notes and uh, tells him that she has just bunches and bunches like them sitting at home. I don't need it right now. I haven't bothered to, uh, to cash them in. So Dylan goes back to Cleveland and he's not keeping mom. This is the juiciest secret. He has to tell everybody. And that's exactly how she planned it. Oh, yeah, no, that was, that was by design. Yes, yeah. exactly. I'm willing to bet that he was the biggest gossip that she knew. Yeah. And that's why she picked him. <laughs> Tell a gossip that this should be kept secret, and you can be absolutely certain that the rest of town will know by tomorrow. Yep. If not by dinner time. So this is where she really starts to cash in. She had expensive tastes 
and she would pay cash on the spot in the range of thousands and thousands of dollars at prominent stores in both Cleveland and Toledo. Quote, no person with millions at his command ever bought with more lavish hand than did she, and when she bought, she had the money to pay for it. She juggled with no securities, genuine or otherwise, when she made her purchases. The cash with which she paid probably came to her through her ability to make banks and bankers think she was a person to whom alone, no matter how large, would be a good business investment. That's a skill I need to learn. Right? Because then you could go into a jewelry store and buy jewels by the tray. I can buy my 4,800 acres in Oregon. Yeah, there you go. She would just go in to the jewelers and see a tray of diamond rings, point to it and say, those look nice. I think you may give me those. Damn. Let's go home, leave, carrying in her muff enough jewels to pay a year's rent of a Fifth Avenue mansion. Wow. She had at home eight trays of diamonds and pearls in a chest, a single rope of pearls that was valued at $40,000, and had 30 closets of clothes. She once bought eight grand pianos all at one time as gifts for friends and paid in cash. Okay, that answers the question. It's like, why does one need eight grand pianos? (laughs) Yeah, that is a valid question. Why not? To, to give us presents. She's a, a shopping addict. Yeah, oh, very much, yes. Uh, she went on a trip to Europe and brought 12 young society girls along with her. When she came back, she went to her favorite jeweler and showed him 12 miniature portraits she had commissioned to be painted in Paris, one of each girl, and she had the jeweler frame them in solid gold. What the fuck? She once bought 100 dolls that cost $1 to $3 each for Christmas, as well as another $500 worth of toys, and had them sent anonymously to the various orphanages and children's wards and hospitals, although we know about it, so... How uh, anonymous was it? Exactly. And she wasn't just, uh, you know, spendy-spendy in America. She would go back to her mother in Ontario and bring presents like gold watches or a piano. Really loves to give people pianos. Well, because way back in the beginning, she had, like, scammed her way into an organ. Yeah, she she does, like, musical instruments, and that also seemed to be something that she and Chadwick bonded over. Because he also had a thing for music. Although, the hearing thing, I don't know how well that goes with the music thing, but she, she at least was given it a go and given everybody she met pianos. She was being called, at this point, the Queen of Ohio. Wow. Yeah. Ooh, what a title. <laughs> She got loans from banks several over time, and then each loan she'd get, she'd use to pay off the last one she'd gotten. She just keeps on doing this. Robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of deal. Exactly. Uh, The president of one bank loaned her $240,000 from his bank, as well as $100,000 of his own money. What the fuck? Someone else loaned her $800,000. Surprisingly, it wasn't... These bigger numbers that started the trouble. It was a comparatively smaller loan. She was named in a suit brought by Herbert D. Newton of Brookline, Massachusetts. He was an investment banker and he loaned her just over $104,000. The promissory note she handed over included an excessive amount of interest. The interest was $86,000. After a little while, he saw the light, especially as word trickled back to him about all the other loans she'd taken out. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to have to go to court if I'm ever going to get my money back. 
They froze all of her money notes, which were all held at one bank, whose treasurer had handed over most of his own money to Betsy. So that must have been a satisfying day for him. <laughs> he was like, yeah, no, mm -mm, we're keeping this. She did try to make a run for it. But she was arrested in New York at a fancy hotel because, of course. In fact, this hotel had just been opened two weeks before. Yeah, she just stayed in, like, some little shithole. They probably would have never found her. Exactly. Don't go to the places they're going to expect you to go. It's kind of like when you go into witness protection. They ask you, what are your top five favorite places that you would want to live? And they send you to exactly zero of those places because those are the places that people who know you would guess. Good to know. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, I want to... I... Florida, <laughs> California, like, well, Texas, like, anywhere tropical would be great. Then they'll send me to Alaska, and I'll be happy. <laughs> See, I'm the opposite. I'm going to tell them all cold places so I can go to a warm place. You're going to go to Florida or hell is what, same difference. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> so, so, this hotel, she was arrested there, and it made big news, actually, People in the hotel found out before the police even got there. And so everybody was craning their necks to get a look. When she was arrested, she had over $100,000 in cash in a money belt. That's $3.2 million today. That's a lot of cash to be wearing in a money belt. Right? Exactly. Like, maybe that's why the post office guy thought that she didn't look good in the dresses. Too much cash. Yeah, that, that bulge from the money belt <laughs> it ruined the dresses' lines. So the bank that had loaned her $800,000 uh, went into bankruptcy, which kind of the opposite of what you, you want a bank to do. Mm -hmm. Her husband divorced her and fled to Europe for an impromptu tour. Her trial was attended by all of her neighbors, a.k.a. the rich families, and uh, fuck you, Andrew Carnegie himself. Oh, he showed up. He showed up. He wanted to see what his fake illegitimate daughter looked like. <laughs> He was kind of pissed that it had gotten this far because, like, I haven't even signed a promissory note in 30 years. And that's definitely not my handwriting. And I would not make stupid typos like this. But I'm glad he was pissed off. In what is a surprise to no one, she was found guilty. How long do you think jury deliberations went on for? Five hours. Three and a half. Joel gets a cookie. Really? In five hours, yep. And uh, so she was sentenced to 14 years in prison and a $70,000 fine. That doesn't seem too bad. Well, she's not going to make it out of prison. No. Yeah. She was 49 when she went in, and even though her status as the Queen of Ohio gave her some special privileges, like being able to bring in lots of her personal effects and have more comfort, it still wasn't great for her health. She died October uh, 1907 after about 22 months in prison. Oh. And as of February 2020, a movie was in the works, but for some reason, that's the last that we've heard of it. I, I don't think uh, anything happened that would have disrupted it. I can't think of a damn thing. No. So, yeah, that is uh, the, the, the woman of many names, Elizabeth Chadwick. Betsy, Hoover, Madam, 16,000 different names. And uh, my, my show notes, which I should have titled Fuck You, Andrew Carnegie, uh, are titled uh, God Gave Them More Money Than Sense. 
which is damn true. So what do you guys think about uh, about our girl? I mean, she was industrious. I'll give her that. She really was. Cunning, too. Yeah. The Carnegie trick was a real cute move. I mean, I'm kind of jealous, but at the same time, a little more honest than that. <laughs> well, and I feel like it'd be really hard to keep up with all your lies. Well, with all the names, like, you're walking around, hey, hey, Hoover, and like, oh, no, no, it's uh, Chadwick today. That's my sister. Don't know, I don't know who you're talking about. I feel bad for her family. Well, I mean, they got a piano. Yeah, well, the sister got her furniture mortgaged. <laughs> oh, I completely forgot this part. She, uh, she died on her 50th birthday. Oh. Literally, the same day. So, uh, October 10th. She went from uh, 57 to 07. I love that the, uh, the mental image of just, like, them bringing in a birthday cake to her. Like, singing down the, the cell walk. And, and then just, oh. Oh. More cake for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was she was quite a character. You wonder like just kind of where this came from, you know, like the long fever. The long the fever, yeah. Like where does one gain the ability to be such a scam artist? She was very successful at it. So I th I'm I'm gonna just go ahead and throw a theory out, and I think it was because she was a middle child of eight children. They probably didn't have a ton. And then she was probably like, you know what? I want everything. I want all of it. And I can get all of it because I've been listening because I haven't been talking. And I know how to convince people to give me all of the things. And so then she started very deliberately talking and convincing people to give her whatever she wanted. And, and she just wanted material things because she probably had nothing but hand-me-downs. Yeah. Like she still had like food in her stomach, a roof over her head, but she had all of her sister's old clothes. And she's like, well enough of this. I'm really thinking about trying to mortgage our furniture. <laughs> I mean, it's all hand-me-down furniture. You know, like, maybe I'll mortgage Christy's great big couch. <laughs> no, you don't. You dare. The minute repo men show up for that thing because you mortgaged it, I am coming down to your house and we both have completely destroyed hips, so it's really kind of a toss. That's, That's not true. Way. I have a brand new hip. That's true. They're not good. Like, I figure I'll be good in about a month, so like, I, I think I can handle this, but but then Jackson could probably outrun me on a, even on a good hip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. He, can be, he can be pretty fast. He gets all that training from racing English Bob across the yard. So I do have a recipe for you guys. Mrs. General Ricketts Cabinet Punch. I have received a number of letters from ladies asking for punch recipes, and though the subject of drinks hardly comes under Lenten dishes, this is obviously an article about Lent, the pious can lay these recipes aside until after Easter. The more worldly will certainly appreciate them. Mrs. General Ricketts was for years one of the leading entertainers of Washington, and here is a recipe which has tickled the palates and stomachs of generals, judges, and statesmen. It is no baby drink, and it should be taken in moderation. Pour three quarts of boiling water over three pounds of sugar. Add one pint of lemon juice, one pint of fine brandy, or a quart of Jamaica rum. Mix well. And before using, stir in one half pint of peach brandy or cordial. This will make you a gallon and three quarters of very nice punch. Three pounds of sugar for a gallon of liquid? That sounds excessive. It's like a giant amount of simple syrup. Yeah. And yeah, then really. 
just like brandy and rum. I'm making this for my next party. I mean, I'll <laughs> drink it, but... I have a punch bowl. I should put it to use. Okay, so that has been the recipe, and uh, then there's my bullshit, rate review, all that stuff on Spotify, Audible, Apple. It really does help. Tell a friend. Uh, if your friends leave their phone unattended, just subscribe them. Joel definitely is not guilty of that. We didn't put him up to it. <laughs> no, I just do it. Yeah, this was his own thing. He loves us that much. <laughs> Be like Joel. <laughs> He's your role model. Oh, that's the first time for that ever. <laughs> His be... face is like, what? <laughs> Joel's your role model. He's your Joel model. Sorry. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> White elephant gift next year. <laughs> you need a Joel model. Yes, absolutely. Oh, gosh. So, uh, yeah, there's all that. And we also have our Patreon that we mentioned, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And you can also PayPal us money using our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. And you will get a shout out on the show, and I will sing your name unless you don't want me to, in which case just say the word. We have an Amazon wish list. I would really love it if somebody would buy a, a book off of that, because I keep on adding things. And I, if you go and look at it, I think you'll find some really interesting stuff. Uh, and so take a look and see if there's anything that strikes your fancy and you can send it to us and we'll do a whole case about it and give you a shout out. Uh, so I'm sure I have more bullshit, but we rearranged the room and I don't have my little piece of paper. So I have, I want to try something. Hi, Banjo. Who's a good boy? <laughs> Banjo. Oh, Banjo, Banjo, Banjo. Who's a good boy? I want to see if he reacts to it. <laughs> yeah, I think he will. I think he will. <laughs> That's going to be hilarious. Because I think he reacted when we did Oh, it yeah, before. he did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Yeah. Uh, what uh, What are we doing this week, guys? What you doing, Amber? Uh, I am working. And that is really all I have planned. Oh, oh, no. Next weekend, I'm taking the kids to go see dinosaurs. Oh, how fun! Yeah, they've already seen it before, and, and they're really, like, not impressed because they're just robots. And uh, the kids know that and think it's pretty not as exciting because it's not real dinosaurs. I don't know. I think it would be more exciting for me. No. Well, let's take Ryan. No, but Max, <laughs> Max did ask me if I could buy him a robot that was the same size as him that could fight back so that he could, like, box him. And he also wants the robot to be able to shock him, so like taser hand. Well, I mean, taser boxing is a thing. He's four. He doesn't know this. He just wants a robot that he can fist fight. I guess your son has a weird masochistic streak. He wants he wants a fist fighting robot. He did not say the taser was going to be for him though. I I feel oh. like that would be for his sister. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Okay, all right. So you're going to work on finding a uh, yeah. rock'em, sock'em, shock'em max bot. He did say if I could not find that, then he will also accept a metal detector to go find treasure. <laughs> I love it. That's so cute. Kids are fun. What are you doing? Um, I'm going to try lasers <laughs> at physical therapy. They, uh, they said one thing they can try for my, my hip joint inflammation is laser treatment. And so I'm excited about that in addition to the continuing the aqua therapy. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm just excited for lasers. I'm lasers. Super excited for lasers, yes. So I'll, uh, I'll let you guys know how that goes. Hopefully I'm more comfortable than I am right now. Joel, what are you doing? 
Uh, I think I have an MRI this week. I told you guys I, I'm doing a medical research study for people under 40 that have had hip replacements. Oh, okay. All right, so yeah, I think right. the MRI is this week that I have to get. Okay. All right. Dorian's going to be jealous of you. She loves those. She loves the MRI. MRI so much. <laughs> yeah, I... I have a little bit of claustrophobia, so they tend to also bother it, me. It's just the noise. Like, it is boring. For some reason, I can actually kind of fall asleep in there. Yeah, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I, it's it's a weird sleep. It's un, an uncomfortable sleep. But when they pull me out, I'm always like, what? I've only had two MRIs in my life, though. So. I've only had two this past year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Three, three. I feel like they probably should at some point give me more just to double check. But they, you, you know how that goes. So. Yeah. So, okay, we've got uh, we've got lots of technology here. We've got robots, and we've got lasers, and MRIs. we've got MRIs. Let's uh, hope that the robots don't take over this next week, because we'll, we'll be busy. Yeah, right? We need, we need them to, to just lay off for a little while. So, yeah, uh, that is it for us this week, and uh, we hope you have a wonderful week. And don't mortgage people's furniture. Yeah. Shouldn't do that. Don't there do that. <laughs> yeah. Or hold somebody up with an antenna. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay with that one. Yeah. But not that guy. Not, not that guy. Not but that guy. It ends at holding them up with the yeah, antenna. Yeah. If, if that's the end of it, yeah, that's totally fine. Um, but uh, maybe don't uh, kill any shopkeepers. There we go. Also that. So rules to live by from us to you. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you uh, next week. Bye. Bye. Sources. Sources. <laughs> I saw you pointing and I was like, oh, well, no. I was like, don't you hit that button. <laughs> don't you dare. My sources this week are uh, Karen Abbott in Smithsonian Magazine, the Encyclopedia of Cleveland History, Queen of the Con from a Spiritualist to the Carnegie Imposter by Thomas Crowell, Wikipedia and from the Library of Congress, the Barber County Index from newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. The Brantford Weekly Expositor, the Hamilton Spectator, and the Dayton Herald. My sources this week are the book Escaped Killer by R.J. Parker, Murderpedia.org, the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, the CDC.ca by Hadil Ibrahim. Anyhow, anyhow, so the doctor and. Oh, she's in New York City. She does the bump into. Fuck you, Fuck you, Carnegie. Carnegie. <laughs> Fuck you, Carnegie. That was a very important point.